To be a physician who's fully present with a whirlwind of COVID going around us, life and death situations, for you, it's parents who maybe have lost children. For me, it's loved ones whose family members are at life and death or looking at someone in their eyes while they're dying. If we can learn to do that and to regulate our emotions and feel our emotions and still be human, that's a skill that applies to any business anywhere in the world. Welcome to Difficult Conversations, lessons I learned as an ICU physician with Dr. Anthony Orsini. Dr. Orsini is a practicing physician and president and CEO of the Orsini Web. As a frequent keynote speaker and author, Dr. Orsini has been training healthcare professionals and business leaders how to navigate through the most difficult dialogues. Each week, you will hear inspiring interviews with experts in their field who tell their story and provide practical advice on how to effectively communicate. Whether you are a doctor faced with giving a patient bad news, a business leader who wants to get the most out of his or her team members, or someone who just wants to learn to communicate better, this is the podcast for you. Well, welcome to another episode of Difficult Conversations, Lessons I Learned as an ICU Physician. This is Dr. Anthony Orsini, and I will be your host again this week. Today, my special guest is Dr. Jonathan Fisher. Jonathan is a Harvard-trained physician and a practicing cardiologist with over 20 years of clinical experience. He has helped thousands of individuals live longer and better lives. In addition to being a board-certified cardiologist, he is also a certified mindfulness meditation teacher, a corporate well-being consultant, and a global keynote speaker. Having recovered from his own painful decade-long journey through anxiety, depression, and burnout as a cardiologist working on the front lines of life and death, he now helps organizations, leaders, and teams heal and reverse the spiral of disengagement and burnout by sharing proven concepts and methods to enhance joy, peak performance, and the bottom line. Dr. Fisher currently serves in leadership roles in various departments at Novan Health in North Carolina including rehabilitation and wellness programs, organizational resilience and well-being team, COVID-19 burnout prevention and recovery task force, empathetic communication training team, corporate onboarding and leadership development teams. He is also the founder of MindPartNow LLC and leads transformational interactive programs for teams and organization. And he is here today to discuss a variety of topics that are seriously affecting our healthcare with respect to physician and provider crises. If you are a healthcare professional, I promise you that it is extremely important that you hear what Jonathan has to say today. And if you're not in the medical field, it's important that you listen so that you can be a more informed patient and an advocate for your family. Jonathan, welcome. Thank you for coming today. Thank you so much, Tony. I've been waiting for this conversation. I love talking with you. It's amazing that you and I met and we've been going back and forth and you might be the only person that's busier than I am in the whole world. And we're both, we both have parallels because our first love is medicine and we still do that and we love to heal through that. But we've also found other passions and I think that's where we have so much similarities. But just finding an hour to do this, we talked a couple of times, but finding an hour to put aside, I think took us a couple months. So I'm glad we finally made it happen. For sure. The hospital has kept us both very busy these days. Yeah, hospital, COVID. And then we both have our passions, me with communication yeah. and training and you with mindfulness. And mm -hmm. last time we spoke, you told me your story. And I think it's really important. And I usually start these podcasts with people telling us about themselves. But I think for you, it's even more important because it lends to your credibility about what you went through as a person, as a physician, and how you got to be where you are today. So 
You told me a great story. I wish you would share that with the audience today. So I, like you, am from New Jersey, suburb of New York, where my dad would hop on the bus every day and go into the city and do his work. He's a doctor, a physician. He's still living, age 94, still in New Jersey. God bless him. Thank you. And mom and dad wanted to have lots of children and wanted to have their children help the world. And so one after another, until there were seven children, I was the last one. So the youngest of seven children, the oldest couple literally went on house calls with my dad. So with the old leather bag, they would get in the back of the station wagon. They'd go around this town, Livingston, New Jersey, seeing patients with low blood count, with chest pain. And so my oldest siblings were programmed early on into this life of medicine, this life of healing. And then in my family, there's so many kids, you couldn't help but look up to the brother or sister that was above you and say, hey, what's this person doing? And so one by one, we all became physicians. And was all a, seven of you? All seven of us became physicians. Wow. That's a lot of money for tuition, I'll tell you that. I used to calculate when I was a kid going through school saying, okay, how much money is dad having to earn? He just works in the basement, basically. So in our house, he set up shop. He had a, the old-fashioned shingled like Norman Rockwell. He was the town doctor. There were Back then, there were 20,000 people in Livingston, New Jersey. And people would come to our house with anything. I mean, he was a general internist. So we had so much fun as kids. We would go downstairs like after the meals. There would be microscopes. There would be old slides. There, there was a treadmill <laughs> for stress tests. There was x-ray machines. So that was back when a doctor did everything. It wasn't mm-hmm. super specialized like today. So I always looked up at my dad in awe. And then there were all these old medicine jars, like with little hand-printed labels. There's alcohol, rubbing alcohol and all this other <laughs> stuff. I think I remember those, yes. Yeah, so the old jars. So grew up in a house where medicine and service were a big deal. And mom wasn't a slouch either. She was a physicist. Wow. Before it was a thing where women would get to go to college and do advanced training. She was born in 1928. She went to teacher's college, Barnard in New York, and she got a PhD in biochemistry. And eventually she worked in the field of nuclear physics. So I was incredibly imprinted, I would say, at a very young age that I had a dad who served the whole town healing people and a mom who was working on nuclear physics and her greatest role model was Albert Einstein. She loved Einstein. And this was the house I grew up in where there was only one picture on the wall of our house, living room house, and it's still there. It's about four feet by three feet, one portrait, and it's nobody in our family. It was Albert Einstein. (laughs) That old black and white. No children's pictures, just Albert Einstein. Just Albert Einstein. (laughs) Now my picture's there, my wife, my kids were all there on the piano. But back then growing up, it was a lot of pressure. You could imagine you're this five, six, seven-year-old kid and you're looking around for role models and how should I be in the world? And you say, okay, I got to be real smart. I have to do something that helps a lot of people. And so that was part of the belief system, the mindset that we grew up in, where it was about service, it was about healing, and it was about the intellect, which is, it sounds great. I discovered about 30 years later that it has some downsides. So I learned pretty early that being smart, being a thinker, always analyzing was a really good thing because you come up with lots of creative solutions. As a doctor, it helped me make a broad differential diagnosis, figuring all the possibilities that could be going on, not just zoning in too soon on one and missing something else. What I realized is I started to feel some loneliness. 
teenage years, college years, I felt this difficulty connecting with other people and I had really didn't understand why. Part of it was because my particular mindset tended towards predicting bad things in the future. So I was really good at worrying, amazing at worrying. And <laughs> I realized that this kind of made me a good doctor because I could worry about all the possible things that could go wrong. What I didn't realize is that over time, this was creating chronic stress inside of me, even as a kid, as a college student, medical resident, always finding things to worry about. And nobody taught me that it's important to let some of those things go or it can wear, literally, it can wear on the heart. Now, we now know there's this thing called broken heart syndrome where you carry too much stress and worry around, too much grief, and it can be devastating. So that was the backdrop. And then I started my practice in New York. I worked there for a couple of years and it was busy. Lots of patients, very sick in Manhattan. And around that time, my best friend called me and she she was about 40 at the time. She said, my vision has been blurry and didn't think it was much. She went to the eye doctor a couple of times and turns out she, as a radiologist, read her own brain scan and she was diagnosed with a brain tumor. Wow. And she was my sister, Andrea. Oh, so sorry. Thank you. So Andrea was the person, the one person in my life who saw that I was struggling and suffering for many years through college and residency. She saw that I wasn't happy. She saw that this wasn't exactly the life that I had imagined. And she was the person who said, hey, why don't you get some help? And for me, in my family of upbringing, it like wasn't a thing that you would talk about. Mm-hmm. My dad is an amazing example of strength and courage and intellect and all these things. One thing he doesn't do is he doesn't complain and he doesn't talk about weakness. And so we all kind of learn that subconsciously that it's not okay to admit, I was going to call it weakness, but now I'll just call it humanity. Human, mm-hmm. The human condition is that we're all frail. We all have our weakness and vulnerability. But it took me a while to learn that it's not the end of the world if we start to be honest about our own weakness, our own fears, imperfections. Because when I chose my residency, I remember I was at, at Mount Sinai, New York, and I was choosing and I was told not to apply to the Brigham Harvard Hospital because I wasn't going to get in because I was like number 17 out of a couple hundred people. And I just decided to apply. I ended up getting into that particular system. It was incredible. But all the time that I was there, Tony, I felt like I was pretending. I was hiding so much stress and anxiety and nervousness inside of me. I saw all these other people who seemed to be totally capable, totally smart. And I had this great imposter syndrome that I was walking around in. Later on, I found out that a lot of other people had the same thing. Actually, I talk about that in my book. I think, tell me if you agree, I think almost every physician, when they become a resident, has some type of imposter syndrome. Wouldn't you agree? We're all there going, how can I possibly do this? I've been faking this and I've been passing my boards. And so I could definitely relate to that. It absolutely is. I think it's there. And there's part of the psychology of being a physician that says you have to know everything. You know, it's kind of like Sam Shev in the house of God. And there's this idea that we have to be all knowing, but we have to be all powerful in many ways. And this can lead to a disconnect between who we think we have to be and show up as And this human condition that we all know about where we're imperfect. And so shortening the story during my residency, I recognized that something was, it was more than just stress. It was more than just anxiety. It was depression. Mm. And even now, Tony, 
for me to talk to you publicly about this, there are laws, there are statutes in medicine that whenever we have to refresh and renew our certification, they say, do you have any history of depression, anxiety, what's called mental illness? It's a hard thing because there can be repercussions professionally, personally, et cetera. So just for me to be saying this to you right now, you may say, oh, no big deal, but it still is a big deal. And I just want to recognize that for a moment. And the reason that I'm saying this, it's very intentional because right now I'm speaking to you, Tony, but I'm speaking to the me from 10 and 15 years ago who had nobody else out there in medicine saying it's normal to feel anxiety. Some of us are depressed. About 15 to 20% of us, frankly, have some form of of clinical anxiety or depression, post-traumatic stress from watching patients die, but none of us talks about it. And so part of my own healing journey was recognizing that I wasn't alone. And so I want other physicians, I want other nurses, pharmacists to know I'm not alone. (laughs) And only when we start to have the courage to talk about it and frankly, face the repercussions. If people listening to this, patients here, this doctor had anxiety and depression, I don't know. They may judge me. They may say, I don't want to see that heart doctor. I happen to be a top-rated doctor and the patients, you know, they, before COVID, they all wanted to hug me, but still. And then people who are the administration in my hospital system. Oh my gosh, Dr. Fisher had anxiety and depression. Does that impact his ability to practice medicine? Now, the American Psychiatric Association and many other boards have come out very firmly saying that having these things does not impair a physician's ability to give good care. And in fact, for me, I believe that this has improved my skills and my ability and my empathy as a doctor. Yeah, I think you really hit on a very important note there, Jonathan. And as a physician, and you're speaking right now to a bunch of physicians and a bunch of nurses, as you said, it's very high probability that a physician's going to have some type of depression, burnout. This leads to burnout, which is the healthcare crisis that we're talking about right now. Some of the numbers that I've seen is about 60% of physicians have at least one symptom of burnout, maybe more for nurses. We had a Dr. Dyke Drummond who makes his living on helping physician burnouts. I think that was one of the earlier episodes. I've interviewed Dr. Susan Wilson, which hasn't aired yet, but may air before yours. Dr. Susan Wilson deals with something called second victim syndrome, which you're nodding your head yes that you know about. I did not know about that. And for the people out there, that's when a physician has something terrible happen, a patient die, et cetera, and then goes into this depression or feeling like they're failure and starts to feel sad and anger and burnout. The doctors and the nurses are the second victim. So I agree with you that there's this certain pressure to not admit it because we think we're going to be seen as weak. But I also talk about in my book being genuine and you use the word human. And I personally think that it makes you a better physician. I personally think that it makes you more empathetic, makes you more compassionate and and makes you a better person, also makes you more relatable. I'm really glad that you're coming out and saying this because I think that there's a whole bunch of people out there listening to this going, yep, that's me. So now you're feeling depressed and all that. And then what did you do to get out of this? I mean, now look at you now. Take us through your journey now of how you recovered. You got into meditation and yoga and now what you're doing now. It started with a very practical approach, Tony. I I hit bottom after my sister had died. I remember I was on the Upper West Side. My wife was in the bedroom. I was curled up on the floor crying. My best friend was gone. She had been my emotional support. And eventually I said, I got to find a way forward because I've got thousands of patients who are depending on me. I've got 
a wife, new kids. And I got on the internet and I Googled, how can I be happy again? <laughs> a good old Google is, is there for you. No matter what you need, Google's there for you. Thank goodness for that. <laughs> and so that took me into this incredible journey. The answer started with, hey, buddy, there's this science called positive psychology, where for 50 years, the best minds in psychology, psychiatry have tried to answer this question, and they have. And it's not just snake oil. This is validated, peer-reviewed research studies on what are the practices and skills that the most well-adjusted, most fulfilled, happiest people have been doing, not just for 50 years, but for thousands of years, going back to Aristotle and his theories on happiness. I started with positive psychology. I read everything I could about the subject. I discovered that in 1998, the head of the American Psychological Association, his name is Martin Seligman, said, I am going to shift the way we talk about the human mind. And we are no longer going to focus like so many German and Austrian psychiatrists and psychologists and Sigmund Freud about how broken we are. But instead, we're going to look at what does a fully functional, adjusted, peak performing, happy human mind look like? And what are the habits, the daily habits that person in, uh, engages in? And one of those early habits was meditation. There was a book called The How of Happiness by Sonia Lubomorsky. And she said, research has shown that people who meditate for a couple of minutes every day feel happier. And so I said, okay, better put that on my list. So mm -hmm. I bought an MP3. I listened. I thought I was going crazy. I couldn't sit still for two minutes. Yeah, I know. I wanted to ask you about that. I was waiting for this to ask you about that. I've tried the meditation thing and uh -huh. I get about three seconds. And yeah. Later on, after you tell your story, I want you to give us some tips on how to do that. I will. And first of all, Tony, congratulations, because three seconds isn't bad. Some people can't do one second. <laughs> all right, well, maybe I'm giving myself too much credit. <laughs> yeah, three seconds, five minutes, seven minutes. Eventually, I worked my way up and I, I learned a lot about my own mind that I didn't know for 30, 40 years that First of all, my mind is all over the place. Second of all, I had a thousand nervous thoughts an hour. Third of all, I actually could choose whether or not to believe those thoughts. That was it. That was the key. The key was I had identified my whole life with my thinking mind. Remember Einstein on the wall? For mm -hmm. me, that's what a human being was. It goes back to Rene Descartes, who was a 17th century philosopher, said, we all know what he said. I think, therefore, I am. Exactly. Yes. So he said, cogito ergo sum. So I was this nerdy kid, and I was like, yeah, I think a lot. So I really must am be a lot. I am. It turns out that he had it wrong. Descartes had it wrong. And what I realized slowly is that it's not I think, therefore, I am. It's I feel, therefore, I am. And, I love that. Uh, and I started to learn how to feel and to label and recognize and notice feelings in my body. I started to recognize this whirlwind, this often a storm of thoughts in my mind leading me into very unhappy, dark places. And I realized that the root of all of my own suffering as a doctor and more was in my own mind. It was purely the thoughts in my mind. And there was another piece of the puzzle, and that was my body. So stress, we could talk a long time about stress, and I see it every day about 70% of my patients in the cardiology clinic are suffering from some form of stress, and they either do or don't know it. Stress lives in the mind, but it also lives in the body. And so I read that yoga had therapeutic effects. So I started doing yoga and I'm, I'm an overachiever, right? So I started going on retreats and weekends here and there. My wife was like, what are you doing? <laughs> What's this yoga stuff? 
So I would fly to Boston by myself for a weekend and learn from the best teachers. We'd start going on meditation retreats for a day, two days, three days, seven days at a silent Zen monastery. So over 10 years, Tony, I started going deeper and deeper, thousands of hours of just sitting quietly, moving slowly, noticing what was happening in my mind, body, and heart. And that was the beginning of the end of my journey. And that's going to be the rest of my life on that journey. Meanwhile, part of it was I came back to work. And in 2012, I said, I got to start sharing some of this. And like you, I'm sure that sometimes when you're teaching, you're benefiting as well, because it's cementing your knowledge, your learning, and it's therapeutic for you in a way when you help other people learn to communicate better. So for me, I came back in 2012 to my hospital and I gave a, a medical grand rounds. And it was something that people weren't talking about so much. It was called mindfulness and the heart. So what's this mindfulness? Eight years ago, I did, did all the research. I said, oh my gosh, this is not some crazy 3,000-year-old thing where people in robes are floating off a pillow. This is stuff that's actually helping prevent heart disease. So turns out, Five years later, 2017, the American Heart Association comes out with a position statement looking, it was a meta-analysis, and it said, we endorse meditation as an adjunct to treating cardiovascular disease. So for me, that was the incredible validation that this stuff that had helped heal my own anxiety, depression, et cetera, was helpful for patients. So perfect combination for you. It was a combination. And so what I recognized was that not only were my patients struggling with stress and all anxiety and broken hearts, but my colleagues would come up to me after talks and after I would speak out and they'd say, hey, can I get some of that? <laughs> I'm really having a hard time. I'm burning out. What is that? And so I just started teaching meditation here and there. Eventually, I spent a week at Oxford uh, in the UK a couple of years ago when I got certified as a teacher. People in my own organization where we have 30,000 employees said, we've heard about this mindfulness thing. Can you share some of that? That was about three years ago. And since then, in my spare time, and the organization has supported me, I've put on about 40 programs for close to 3,000 people live. This is before COVID. And now, starting in June, I'm going to be spending 40% of my time at an organizational level, not just talking and teaching about the skills of mindfulness, but specifically teaching compassion. I do a lot of work in communication because I believe that so much of what's broken about our healthcare system is broken relationships, disconnection at all levels. So between administrators and physicians and nurses, physicians and patients. And I really believe that the core of all healthy relationships and organizations is communication. I think communication is the relationship, not just verbal communication, nonverbal communication how we show up with our bodies. And so I then discovered that mindfulness has a lot to say about communication. Wow. Tell me about that. What does that elaborate on that? So in the 1960s, there was a man named Marshall Rosenberg, who was, I believe, in Detroit. And there was race riots and civil unrest and injustice going on. And he developed this technique called nonviolent communication, which was based in being aware of what's happening in your own body and being aware of your own thoughts and feelings. And since then, the, a lot of experts in the West, namely among them, an amazing person named Oren J. Sofer, who wrote a book called Say What You Mean, he described that this skill of mindfulness, which anybody can learn, improves your ability to communicate. The way it works is 
we could talk about communication all day, and I know that's what you love to do. The way I see mindfulness being helpful is that a lot of the problems with communication are that we're trying to tell. We're busy telling people things based on our own thoughts, what we think is right. And not enough is about feeling. What is the person we're with feeling right now? So right now, Tony, I'm looking at you on the screen. I'm looking at your eyes. I'm looking at your face. I'm looking at your body posture. I'm trying to see how are you receiving this? At the same time, Tony, part of my mindfulness practice is as I'm speaking, I'm feeling the air move through my lungs. I'm noticing whether there's any tension or tightness in the middle of my chest or my low abdomen to tell me, are we connecting here? Is my message coming across clearly? So this is part of just a small piece of what the mindfulness practice does to inform my ability to communicate. It helps me be present in my body so that I don't get so carried away in my mind when I'm speaking. Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense. And we talk about physician burnout. And and when I teach communication, I say all the time, physicians believe that our job is to just give out information, that this is the way we're taught. Like you need to educate the patient and I'm going to sit here I'm going to do a great job because I'm going to spend 20 minutes talking about congestive heart failure. And I'm going to tell you down to the cellular mechanism about what happened. (laughs) And as I teach, and it's been 10 years now, I'll say, what was the point of your interaction? And nine out of 10 times physicians say, I want to provide all the information. And then I jokingly say to them, why didn't you just hand them a Google doc? If it's about information, you could print out CHF, you can give them a book on it. Of course, it's about information. It's our job to educate. But it's also about building that relationship with that patient one-on-one and more and more data, as you said, is coming out that shows that if I could connect on a human-to-human basis with my patient, and part of that, as you're speaking, I'm thinking, if I can understand my own body and what I'm going through, with mindfulness, I'll be better at understanding what they're going through. And my patient and I are going to connect and we're going to form that real relationship And studies have shown that if you have a trusting relationship with your physician, you're more likely to take the medication, you're more likely to follow the therapeutics, you're more likely to follow up, and you have better outcomes. And so one of the failures of medicine has been to tell physicians that their job is to educate, and it is to a certain extent, but not their number one job. Their number one job is to build trust. As you were speaking about understanding your own body, I was thinking about how important that is. And then we also have to fight the 100 years. In my book, I talk about the year 1912 and how that was a big turning point in medicine. We have to fight almost over 100 years of saying, doctor, don't feel. Your job is to be a robot, to give out the information. And if you feel any emotion at all, you should fight it. And tell me if I'm wrong, but that must cause amazing stress when you feel like crying or you feel like being really sad and you have that medical school professor who said to you, stop that, don't do that. And then you go home and you're feeling really dissatisfied with yourself, correct? Tony, you just gave a masterclass at what you said and so many things that I agree with. If I can go back to the first thing that you said, you talked about how we're so busy telling our patients that as doctors, we think that's our job. Something that really changed the way that I practice was I was talking with a psychiatrist friend of mine, and he said, you know, the data, the data on anti-anxiety, antidepressants and all that. I said, what are you talking about? He explained that the majority of the benefit that people get in terms of healing, whether it's the mind, whether it's the body, is not the pills, it's not the medications. It's the therapeutic 
deep, trusting, almost I'll say loving relationship that either does or does not exist with their physician or nurse. That was radical for me. It was against everything. I had never learned that in medical school. Nobody ever taught me. I was so busy teaching and proving how smart I was. Information does not heal people. Nope. It does not. And I, I really wanted to linger on that point, Tony, because for me, once I was convinced of that, it was like a no brainer. Oh my gosh. If I can start to, first of all, heal myself enough so that I'm not thinking about the next patient and the last patient and the patient who died, and I can be fully here for you when I walk in the room, if I can regulate my own emotions, first of all, then I can connect with you and make you feel heard and seen and understood as a patient. And maybe, and this is controversial, maybe even feel loved a little bit by me, Tony. Mm -hmm. I know as a cardiologist, and there's research, we can talk about the research on compassion's effects on the human heart and blood vessels. I know that's more powerful than any drug I can give you. Absolutely. And then if you do feel some emotion because your patient's dying or you just made a critical conversation, breaking bad news, and you understand that it's okay, you'll let it happen. And then when you go home at night, and this is the problem that a lot of physicians have, the second victim syndrome, then when you go home at night, you're not kicking yourself saying, why did I let myself get upset? Why did I let myself feel that emotion? I should have stayed stoic. Why? This is over a hundred years of misinformation. And so I love that. Let's understand our body and what's going on. And I can say one more thing about that, because I didn't get to the second part of your question about what happens if we don't allow ourselves as doctors, if we go around like robots, like I spent 20 years like a robot, like a brain on, on stilts, these emotions, and some of them are traumatic emotions. When I saw my first patient die, he was a 24-year-old who came in with cardiac arrest, and I did CPR for I don't know how long. I never processed that, Tony. Right. I carried that not in my mind, but I carried that in my body. And we know now about trauma, that the whole field of trauma was wrong for a while. The trauma... The way we heal from emotional stress as doctors is we should just talk about it. Just tell the stories over and over about all the bad things that happened. That's not it. So much of healing now from post-traumatic stress and what they call second victim or vicarious trauma, secondary stress that Susan Wilson was talking about is that we have to work with our bodies, maybe moving our bodies, stretching our bodies. We hold emotions in our bodies. We know that now. That's that's why they're called feelings because we literally feel them in our body. And so I don't want people to think that the work of healing ourselves as physicians from burnout is all about thoughts in the mind and working with anxiety and stress. That's a big part of it. Another part of it is learning to be with and work with feelings in our body to loosen up the things that we've been holding on to for so long. And this applies about 60 to 75% of my audience is in the healthcare and this podcast, but we have a growing number of people in the business world. And if you're listening to this podcast and Many of you have been very loyal every week, and I appreciate that. I want to say thank you. If you're listening to this podcast and you're saying, okay, I'm not a doctor or nurse, what does this have to do with me? And my answer is this has a lot to do with you because you need to know as a patient what you should expect, how to choose a doctor. And I've had many friends, I'm sure, Jonathan, you've had too, that call me up and say, doctor told me this, or they say it to me. You said this to me yesterday, Dr. Orsini, and my cousin just called me the other day. Doctor told me this, but I Googled and it said something else. And my answer is always the same. Either you trust your physician or you don't. And it's okay to be an informed patient. But in the end, 
if you have that trusting relationship with your doctor, you're not going to listen to Dr. Google. And Dr. Google is very good. I don't want to say anybody shouldn't be an informed patient, but it really comes down to that. And if the doctor is himself or herself, if the doctor's tuned in, mindful, lets them feel emotions, bonds, is a genuine person, you're going to read that Google document and you're going to say, I know it says this, but I trust Dr. Fisher. And that's what medicine is all about. It's about human to human. So if you're thinking, why am I listening to this podcast? Because I'm not a physician or a nurse. The answer is it's even more important to you because you're going to go to a physician and you're going to say, I don't know. I just didn't, I didn't feel there was no relationship there. I don't know if I trust him. And the answer is that's fine. He may be a great doctor, but find somebody else. And if you're a physician out there, as we increase the patient experience, the importance of it, you better learn how to do this. Mm-hmm. You better learn how to communicate. You better learn how to build trusting relationships because patients are, are consumers now. Patients want more than a smart doctor. Being a smart doctor is, is assumed. Mm-hmm. The rest of it is all about loyalty and same thing with a hospital. If you're a hospital administrator, if someone goes to your hospital and doesn't feel that they had a good experience, they're not coming back. So the take-home messages here, find a doctor who's able to understand and build that genuine relationship. So the other thing I'll say is there's a, you were talking about mindfulness and understanding yourself. I don't know if you, there's a guy named Garrett Kramer and Garrett Kramer, if you call him a sports psychologist, he'd get angry with you. And he's a Jersey boy. And I've met him several times. He wrote a book called Still Power. And Garrett Kramer talks to the highest level sports people, Derek Jeter, big time sports people. And he talks to them about how only internal factors affect your emotion. External factors don't affect your emotion. And I met him a few times. He told me a story one time about Derek Jeter. We're going off on tangent here, but I got to tell you this because it's amazing. And Derek Jeter went, struck out three times and he made an error in the ninth inning to put the other team ahead. And in the bottom of the ninth, he had to bat. He let off and he gets a home run. They win the game. And the reporter says to him afterwards, how hard is it to get your mind ready to get up at the plate five minutes after you made the game-changing error in the field? And this is a great story. Derek Jeter looked at the reporter and said, I don't understand the question. What does fielding have to do with hitting? (laughs) And it's a great example of 99.9% of us would be upset that we did this upset so the point that garrett teaches and i highly recommend this book he's awesome is that your feeling from that error comes from inside and he's right the fielding has nothing to do with hitting and the highest level people can think that way most of us can't though so just a great story i wanted to share with you so i thought that was great that's amazing tony that makes me think of two things one is the whole series of books called the inner game right the inner game of golf It's all about that. It's about if we can master our ability to know where our attention is going and then choose where we put our attention. And that includes not just on the golf ball or the baseball, but also in the boardroom. Or is it on something stressful that happened yesterday? Or can I be with you right now, Tony? So that's where mindfulness also comes back. And again, mindfulness is not some mystical thing. For me, it's, it's a way of training attention is what it is. And there are parts of the brain in the cingulate cortex frontal cortex that literally gets stronger the more we do these practices. And it allows us to do exactly what Derek Dieter did, which is he was able to let go of something that may have been a memory of being in the field. It may have been the 
the guilty feeling of making a mistake, all those swirling emotions. Part of what these practices have allowed me to do is to let the, just drop them, just let them go so I can be fully present with you and meet your needs. And then you ask, how is this relevant to people outside of medicine? I was asked to speak at IBM's global conference about six weeks ago, just to give a keynote on leadership. And there's incredible tie-ins, these practices. Number one, to be a physician who's fully present with a whirlwind of COVID going around us, life and death situations. For you, it's parents who maybe have lost children. For me, it's loved ones whose family members are at life and death or looking at someone in their eyes while they're dying. If we can learn to do that and to regulate our emotions and feel our emotions and still be human, that's a skill that applies to any business anywhere in the world. And I found that they were very interested in how do you lead from your heart? We talk about, we hear a lot now about human-centered leadership, heart-centered leadership. Well, as a cardiologist, I know what happens in the heart when we're leading. Mm -hmm. And it can be very stressful. It can be very lonely. And there may be a tendency to isolate ourselves and to pretend like we've got it all together. And there are ways to be more vulnerable, to be more human, that people actually find appealing and they want to be on your team. It's just the opposite of what we thought. So incredible usefulness outside of medicine. And then last week, I spoke at Merrill Lynch, giving a keynote there for their financial planners. And I said, how can I help you guys? And they said, no, so much of our business is our relationship with our clients. And if we lose that relationship, we lose our livelihood. And I said, this is it. This is what we do as doctors. This is what mindfulness allows us to do. This is what communication, when you really study communication, not just read five bullet points, but go deep you can develop the skills and become a master communicator so that you don't lose your clients, so that people want to work with you. So what we're talking about, I personally believe, has implications not just within medicine, but beyond medicine as well. Absolutely. During the last few months, most of my lectures have been non-healthcare lectures, have been with companies who their human resource department wants to know how to give bad news. Their leadership wants to know how do you have that difficult conversation with an employee who's not doing well? And the skill set's the skill set. And really, that's how I came up with the title for this podcast, Lessons I Learned as an IC Physician. Because if you can have those difficult conversations, if you can tell someone that their baby has a major bleed in the brain and is going to have lifelong deficits, and you can do that and still form that relationship, then I can teach a leader how to get that kind of employee engagement that he or she is looking for also. So there's so many different parallels in this. And so that's great. Now, this is a difficult conversation. So I'm going to finish up a couple questions, the one that I always finish up with. But the first question I want to ask you is, okay, so I'm out there, I'm listening to this, I'm a physician, I'm a nurse, a business person, I'm feeling burnt out, I'm feeling depressed, I'm feeling like this is not working for me, I'm not coming home fulfilled. The first conversation has to be a conversation with yourself. So can you give us any advice on that? And then, and where do I move from there? So let's say I'm a physician out there and I'm feeling all this. Give me some advice on how to have that conversation with myself and then move forward. I love how you said that, that the first conversation is with ourself. And there's something called self-talk. It's also called the inner narrative. And many of us don't even hear that. We're so busy with our iPhones and with uh, watching the news and getting into arguments. We can't hear that inner narrative. But to do the work and to start to heal ourselves, we have to slow down. We have to get quiet, at least for three seconds or a minute. 
to start to hear the thoughts that are actually going on. About 80,000 thoughts a day, Tony, and about 60% of them are negative. And about 60% at least are repetitive from yesterday. So I would advise anybody listening who's dealing with that stress. I know it's hard because we're so used to being active and on all the time. Give yourself permission to just be alone for a few minutes. Take away all distractions. Put your phone in the other room. Turn off the TV. Just sit quietly. Don't think about your patients. Don't think about the job. Just watch your breath for a minute or two. Just notice what it feels like in your body without judging it. So that's the first step is doing the opposite of what we're used to doing, which is racing around all the time like a chicken with our head cut off. But give yourself that time, number one. Number two, remember that we always have a choice. We have a choice of whether to believe certain thoughts that are going through our mind, like the burnt out doctor or the stressed out business person is saying, what's the number one thing? I can't do this. I can't handle this. It's too much. I'm overwhelmed. So really the first step is to realize that that's actually a thought. It's not a fact. And so if we recognize that we're suffering, we're struggling because we're believing something that's coming from our own mind, hey, I have a choice. My choice is I don't have to believe every little thought that comes into my head. I can choose other thoughts. If I say the thought is COVID is so overwhelming, I can't take it anymore. I'm worried about my family and kids getting sick. I could have another thought. And the other thought, Tony, could be, I choose to believe that COVID is going to teach us a lot of lessons as a society. It's going to teach us how we're all connected as a world, how despite all these differences we want to put up, black and white and Republican and Democrat, we are all human beings. We're all vulnerable and we all bleed the same blood. So that could be another way, another thought that I choose to have instead of woe is me. I could choose to have a thought instead of woe is me. I'm not alone here. Hold on. I'm stressed out right now, but there's a million other people just like me having the same worries. Oh my gosh, I am not alone. So for me, that's really the most important part is recognizing, uh, number one, we have a choice about whether to believe every single thought going through our head. And two, giving ourselves permission to slow down, to feel whatever we're feeling. It's okay to feel sad, stressed out, afraid. Just start giving it a name. Just start labeling your emotions. Oh, it gives us a little objectivity. So much of our struggling, Tony, and for me personally, it was, I didn't even recognize what was going on. I just was so busy being anxious and depressed that once I learned to call it what it was, which was, oh, this is what it feels like to be anxious, it created some distance between the emotional state and my mind. And in that distance, I was able to start to say, this is just a feeling in my body right now. I'm not really falling apart. So we could go further, but the first step is remembering that choice we have in our thoughts and disconnecting just a little bit from all the stress that's going on. That's fantastic. There's so many parallels between you and me. We're both dedicated physicians and I love my job and I'll stop, but we're both, I'll never stop, but we're, we're both so passionate about helping other people. And I said something to someone many years ago and I said, you know, I save lives and babies just as you do all day long. And yet the work that I do with teaching communication and teaching physicians how to bond and build relationships to me is the most important thing that I'm doing. And that shocks people. And then when I elaborate, and the same thing with you is every physician is going to have 200 to 250,000 patient interactions before they retire. And so if you and I together can somehow improve those patient interactions, make the patients and the doctors be able to bond, 
the ripple effect on an individual basis. I've trained almost 10,000 people do the math. That's a lot of patient interactions. And boy, is that really fulfilling for me. And I can tell from your face, this is not something that you're doing just as a side gig. That this <laughs> is something that, that you believe in and you want to do this. And there's excitement in your voice. And I totally can relate to that because the same thing happens with me. It's like a, you have this information that you just found the source of gold and you yeah. just, am I right? Yeah. I feel the same way. You're Absolutely. Like, I have found this, the, the fountain of youth that I want to tell somebody. So yeah. please listen. And yeah. so I think this is going to be a great format for people to get out and, and hear. And right now I know that you're touching certain people that are listening to you both in business and in healthcare. And they're going, you know what? This is great. Maybe they'll at least start by going through their room and shutting off their phone. And I think that would be a major step. Jonathan, I finish every podcast because I know you listen with the same question and it's usually people hate me for it because it's a difficult one. Share with us your most difficult conversation, either that you've had personally or that you have on a regular basis and give us some advice about that. Tough one, huh? Yeah, it's a tough one. And if I'm going to be honest, the most difficult conversations happen at home and they happen with my wife and they happen with my children. And the most difficult conversations often happen when I am feeling angry or frustrated, or I find myself behaving <laughs> in ways that I'm not proud of. Mm-hmm. You know, I pride myself on being kind and empathic and compassionate. And yet, Tony, I still, even after all <laughs> thousands of hours, I still find myself acting like a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> I act like a jerk. And I, what person in his right mind, what father would ever yell at his children? And yet, I do that sometimes. And so for me, the hardest conversation is twofold. One, it's the conversation now that I know to have with myself when I'm about to yell or just afterwards. And it's a conversation that looks and treats myself as if I'm just another kid <laughs> and just tr- and trying not to beat myself up and, and giving myself a little permission to say, you know what, you, you really messed this up, but you're a human and you're trying and you're really studying this stuff and you're trying to be better. And then the other half of the conversation is to say to my son, if I've yelled or if I've been a jerk, I said, look, I just behaved in a way that it's, I'm not the father that I really want to be for you. And I really am committed to working on this with you. Can you be patient with me? And can you share with me what it's like, what it's like to be with me when I'm like that? And so that's my most difficult conversation. And it's one, I'm, I'm sad to say, but I'm realistic. It hasn't just happened once it, and it's going to happen again. And I get a little better each time. It happens to all of us. I think that's great insight. And if it makes you feel any better, my wife will tell you that men really never do grow up. So <laughs> that we're just big boys. And I'm sure your wife probably says the same thing that we really don't. Even for birthday presents and holiday presents, we're always asking for cool gadgets like we're still little kids and stuff. So, yeah, Jonathan, this has been uh, really very revealing. You're so easy to speak to. This was one of the easiest podcast interviews I've ever given. And I want to thank you for that. What's the best way before we close? I'm sure you hit a lot of people in the heart, wink, wink, with the (laughs) double meaning there. But what's the best way for someone to get in touch with you if they really need more advice or if they really want you to speak? How's the best way to get in touch with you? If you just remember Happy Heart MD, an easy one to remember. That's who uh, I am. And that's also what my mission is to help people live with healing their hearts and also happier hearts. So if you go to happyheartmd.com, that's my personal website. 
I have a YouTube channel. It's Happy Heart MD. I love connecting on LinkedIn. I'm just by my name or Google Happy Heart MD. And there you'll find online for physicians and people in healthcare, I have started a global conversation for ending physician burnout. And so if you look up ending physician burnout, there's going to be a couple of summits that are coming up as well for that. And I'm also on Instagram. Love. That's fantastic. And we'll put all of those, uh, like I say, if you're driving, I don't want you to stop and write this down. So I'll put this all in the show notes. There'll be links to Jonathan and how to get in touch with them very easily. If you like this podcast, please go ahead and hit subscribe. And I'm going to ask my listeners to do something else. Every one of you go out, find 10 of your friends and say, hey, I just heard this amazing podcast with Dr. Jonathan Fisher. Here's the name of it. Hit subscribe. Uh, We are available on everything. But I've been so blessed to have amazing guests. The way I get amazing guests, now Jonathan and I wasn't that case. We just kind of hit it off from the beginning. But a lot of guests that I try to get want to know how popular my podcast is. And I've been really lucky that I hit top 100 right away in medicine. And yeah, I'm really excited about that. And we're moving forward. But if you like this podcast and you want another amazing guest and another amazing guest, just say to yourself, hey, it's free. Tell your friends it's free. It doesn't cost anything. Hit subscribe. If you leave a review, that even helps more. It looks like I'm begging here. I'm not begging. I just (laughs) go ahead and just spread the word is what I'm saying. So go ahead and hit subscribe. If you want to get in touch with me, I'm always available at the website, theorsiniway.com, Instagram, LinkedIn, et cetera. Go ahead. I'm big on LinkedIn. That's how I met Jonathan. So please go ahead. Jonathan, thank you. You've just been amazing. And I hope people get in contact with you because your services are really well needed. So thank you so much. Thank you, Tony. What a pleasure. Thank you. All right, Jonathan. Thanks. If you enjoyed this podcast, please hit the subscribe button and leave a comment and review. To contact Dr. Orsini and his team or to suggest guests for future podcasts, visit us at theorsiniway.com.